Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. My guest on this week's episode is Jennifer Fondrevay, the founder of Day One Ready and an advisor to companies on how to prepare for the human capital challenges of M&A. Jennifer and I recorded this episode back in 2018, and we're re-releasing it today, both because the content remains extremely relevant, but also because Jennifer published her book late last year and is now heading out on a book tour. The book is called Now What? A Survivor's Guide for Thriving Through Mergers and Acquisitions, and it's available to order on Amazon. We'll include a link in the episode description, too. We're working on some new episodes that we'll be releasing starting next month. Until then... Here are insights from Jennifer Fondrevay into the human side of an M&A transaction. Jennifer, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So we've run a number of stories in MMG about the human side of M&A and the cultural issues that can cause a merger or a private equity investment to fail. But I understand from your research that this reality still hasn't sunk in for many acquirers or investors. Why do human issues continue to go underappreciated during these deals? So it's what's interesting about that is after the interviews, I really don't I don't believe it goes unappreciated. I think it's simply not the immediate priority for deal makers. It is purely the first priority is getting the deal done uh, to the point where I've even had um, several, and, and, and I get their perspective, but I've had uh, PE guys and gals both say, um, you know, I, I think what you have is really important, focusing on the human piece, but I don't want to bring you in too early because I don't want to mess up my deal. Mm-hmm. I'd rather get the deal done. And, and you know, I, I recognize the, the reason for it, but by not thinking about the human side at the very beginning of the deal, you set yourself up for a number of the people problems that do occur. And so that's what I'm continually trying to, to foster is that understanding. It's not something that can just be pushed off and thought of later. The sooner you think about it, the greater chance your deal has, not just for the signing and that, that moment, but for success afterwards. And how did this come on your radar? Why did you decide to begin looking into these issues? You know, it's it's actually it's fascinating to me. I didn't think about it at the time, but mergers and acquisitions have been a part of my career throughout my career. So in my first 15 years, I was in advertising. The two multinational ad agencies I worked at both went through a merger and an acquisition. I worked at J. Walter Thompson, and it was acquired by WPP. I worked at Footcone and Belding, and that merged with Draft. And... Uh, the draft one in particular, actually, I highlight in my article, um, you know, was was painful. The FCB and, and draft dynamic, that cultural inter- integration was not successful, and I was a witness to that. Uh, also, the clients that I served when I was in advertising, um, it's it's a roster of M&A experiences, Kraft, Nestle, Cadbury, Coors, and seeing what happened in those situations I think is what initially put it on my radar. You had a lot of stops and starts, things that just weren't, weren't achieved because of the pain of, of not having thought through the integration piece for the merger or the acquisition. 
Uh, and that's even before my own personal experience. I went through three multi-billion dollar acquisitions. Um, and in each of those experiences, I kept thinking, God, there's just got to be a better way. There has to be a way where people can uh, more immediately, positively contribute to the success versus what I witnessed time and again, which is uh, because the people piece hadn't been thought through, you had long periods of time where the strategy kept changing and shifting. Um, people weren't clear on what their role was. You had talent leaving an exodus because too long a period of time of not knowing how to contribute and what this was going to mean for their career. Your, your talent uh, isn't going to stick around for that. So witnessing that is what uh, had me by the third acquisition finally say, okay, I've got to stop saying there's got to be a better way. I needed to start showing what does a better way through M&A look like. Mm. And that ultimately led you to conduct interviews yep. with the intent of writing a the, book. The first, the first thought purely was just to write a playbook. Uh, I, I had planned to continue with my marketing career. Uh, what I'd realized is a lot of the what I saw the challenges were was because people didn't know the playbook. They didn't understand the M&A playbook. I had gone through so many of them, I, I could almost anticipate how things were going to play out. And I thought, if people had a playbook, then there might be a chance for them to be more successful. Um, but as I was writing that playbook and interviewing, I've interviewed about 60 plus um, CEOs, CFOs, private equity, middle managers, HR people, they would consistently say, this is a really important message. This is a good idea. You've got to get this book into the hands of as many people as possible. Um, and then I just realized, okay, well, that wasn't going to happen with me just handing out the book. <laughs> which was, uh, that distribution wasn't going to work. And, you know, after talking to particularly CEOs and, and private equity who said, you know, consulting in this space, there's a need for that to help companies better understand the people side and how to solve for it. Um, and so ultimately it transitioned for me from just writing a playbook to consulting to um, mid-market companies, um, forward-thinking business owners, entrepreneurs, um, family-owned businesses, uh, and even private equity as well to help them not only anticipate what the people problems will be, but understand how to plan for them in advance. Sure. And what's at stake here ultimately? Do we know how many M&A transactions fail for cultural integration reasons or, or the people component? Well, I'm, and obviously I'm biased. I would say future deal success is at stake. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's getting more and more difficult to assume that just being able to throw money at it will make the deal successful. And so for me, the future uh, of deal success um, hinges on paying closer attention to the people piece sooner in the process. Um, I, don't, I don't have a statistic on which of them have failed because of culture specifically, but what I have seen, uh, both in my interviews as well as the research I've done, Typically, there's four things that are attributed to the failure, the 70-90% failure rate. Um, first is overestimating the valuation. Mm -hmm. and, and what happens there is if you've overvalued, then the Herculean efforts required to achieve that in year one are rarely achieved. That that's, tends to be the number one reason um, I hear first and foremost for the failure rate. 
but equally um, adding to that, and this is where all the people piece comes in, the uh, complexity of not only cultural integration, but operational complexity, being able to bring systems and people together, uh, particularly in, in today's day and age where digital technology has transformed so many companies. You have some that are further in their life cycle than others and trying to integrate that um, brings a whole raft of problems. And then unexpected people problems. Um, and that's the one where I probably fixate on the most because I can say that they're not unexpected people problems. There are people challenges, but they shouldn't be unexpected. You can't anticipate them with the right planning and forethought. Um, in fact, in a lot of the consulting work I do, talking to, to CEOs and business owners, I can almost inevitably say, okay, based on what your company is about and what you're looking to do, here are going to be at least five of the people problems that you can anticipate. And it's just, it's, I don't ever think it's intentional. It's just people don't think about that. That's not their focus. They're either focused on the deal or particularly for CEOs on just making the company uh, profitable and working. So it's, frankly, it's been uh, amazingly rewarding for me to be able to consult in that way because um, that's, that's what this all started with is helping people do a better job through mergers and acquisitions. And you mentioned not thinking about the people piece early enough. What other mistakes are you seeing acquirers and investors make? What are they getting wrong during the M&A or investment process? There's a, a couple of things. The first one I see repeatedly is assuming that challenges that will come because of people, because of your workforce is an HR issue. Uh, I, that everyone has accountability and the success and failure of the merger or the acquisition. So to make the assumption that, oh, well, we'll just deal with that people piece later on. Let's just focus right now our due diligence is on the numbers. Uh, I, I think that's faulty thinking. And by relegating it just to HR, it makes it relegates it to a group of people who equally may be blindsided and 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 don't always consistently have a seat at the table when the deal is being defined. So um, you set yourself up for failure almost from the get-go. I think the the second piece, and again related to to uh, HR, is so much more energy tends to be focused on the outplacement. The the once you're doing your operational efficiencies and you've determined the, the the departments that you are letting go, that outplacement then obviously and understandably gets a lot of attention. But you have a lot of people left behind who are trying to manage a vision that they're still trying to wrap their head around and still trying to understand. And there's less attention paid to to that group of people. Uh, so I say we've got to spend as much time and attention focused on the in-placement as we do on the out-placement. And everybody owns a role and, and is accountable for that success. It shouldn't just be HR that has to manage that. And was there anything that you heard as you were writing the book and doing these interviews, anything you heard that surprised you? It, there were a couple of surprises. Um, from a personal level, I, I felt enormously privileged to talk to as many people I did about what was clearly a very raw topic. 
one of the surprises was in talking to CEOs and CFOs in particular, a number of times they would say to me, I don't know if I've ever actually talked about this with someone. They recognized that they had had lessons learned themselves. Uh, one conversation in particular with a CFO who admitted to me he had been the acquirer consistently and looked at it as Excel spreadsheet numbers, putting people in boxes. He said it was just that was, he was all about the efficiency. But when his firm was acquired unexpectedly and he was blindsided, he said he had no idea how emotional that feeling was. And, and he said he, it was almost um, an epiphany, a wake-up call, what it feels like to be acquired when you're not expecting it. And he said it, it informed how he thought in the future about his acquisitions and it completely changed uh, his approach and process. Not everyone has the benefit of that. If they haven't been acquired, they don't recognize the emotional experience. But for me, that was a surprise and, and a big part of what I emphasize uh, in the book. It is an emotional experience and, and you have to appreciate what it feels like. Um, the second uh, surprise I talk about actually in the, the HBR article that I wrote, which is the us and them dynamic that mergers and acquisitions almost instantaneously create. Uh, I think there's an assumption that there's an us and them dynamic purely between our company and the company that acquired us or who we're merging with. Um, but what I saw consistently is that it manifests in three ways. There's our company and their company, that's one. But there's also the executives versus frontline leaders. There becomes an us and them dynamic between those two groups. And then the third, uh, which I just touched on a little bit, is the who stays versus who goes. There's equally that dynamic. And those three dynamics can play all at the same time or at different stages post-deal. And what's fascinating for me, and this was, I can't say the surprise, but uh, an epiphany for both me and the people I was interviewing is so much attention is placed on the cultural integration, our company and their company, and how to bring it together but less is paid between some of the, the us and them dynamic that can be particularly devastating and destructive is between executives and frontline leaders. If frontline leaders are feeling blindsided and not involved, I like to say they're the people who aren't in the room when the deal is made and the strategy is defined, but they're burdened with the execution. So now they're handed a strategy that they may quickly see is going to be almost impossible to execute in the time frame allowed. And so that can create an us and them dynamic equally that can be painful. Um, and for me, that was, that was a surprise and, uh, and, and one I got a lot of response on um, from the article about. Hmm. And how do you mitigate that? Does that fundamentally come down to communication? Well, it is absolutely communication. Um, you know, the there's a couple of things I uh, I touch on in the in the article, and I think both communication in word and in deed, mm -hmm. uh, particularly on the executives versus frontline leader um, us and them dynamic. That one. Oftentimes I feel that the assumption is, well, we've communicated the vision, now everybody should just go off and be able to do it. You have to continue to communicate it and you have to communicate it in multiple formats. It can't just be the one town hall meeting, even if you do the town hall globally, 
Uh, you just showing a PowerPoint repeatedly doesn't help people understand the vision. You need to give that communication time and the frontline leaders in particular need to feel invested in that vision and be able to communicate it out. Uh, and that's where also you've not just got to talk it, but you've got to walk the vision. You need to be able to pivot and identify what are what are values, what are things that we will continue to do because that fits with the vision and things that we won't. And the sooner you identify that, the better that your workforce can appreciate what they need to be doing and how they need to be going after it. Um, one of the things that came through consistently beyond the importance for communication is don't let things go unanswered indefinitely. You have to have time frames. If people don't understand, well, how long before you, you know who's going to come together or how we should be working as teams and what teams should be uh, partnering to make this possible. If you leave that indefinite, and it's surprising to me how often that happens, where companies are still kind of figuring out how to execute the strategy in real time versus having thought that through in advance. And so frontline leaders are, are trying to figure out how to keep their teams motivated when sometimes they're having to answer, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how long that's going to go. And there's nothing wrong with saying I don't know. It's just if you are saying that for an indefinite period of time, um, it contributes to uh, people not feeling invested in the vision. Mm -hmm. And you almost don't know if you're running a marathon or a sprint. Absolutely. How long are we out here? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And and it, it was uncanny. If, if it had only been a couple of interviews where I had people say to me, um, they'd have communicated to them, well, one of your departments will stay and one will go. We're not quite sure yet. We're still working that through. Well, then neither department. You're either going to have um, two groups working at odds or you're going to have people say, well, I, I don't know if we're going to stay or we're going to go. So that's almost a license to start looking outside. Sure. And, and, and all of that undermines deal success. So that's why I, I make an emphasis on the fact that you can anticipate how people are going to react. It's, there's patterns within that. So the sooner in your planning process that you anticipate those and create a plan and a strategy and an organizational structure tied to the strategy, that needs to be ready to go day one. Mm -hmm. Day one being the, the moment you start thinking of a merger and acquisition, that's your day one, not the day you announce things. If you put things off until then, you, you leave too long a period of time where things are still being figured out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, knowing that M&A can create uncertainty or frustration, it can create a talent challenge. How yeah. does a company retain and attract new talent when they're managing this disruption post-integration? Yeah, and, and that has become such a huge issue. If I hear um, anything consistently... Um, Culture always is, but it's considered uh, a touchy-feely culture. It's hard for me to wrap my hands around. Like I said earlier, they, they assume that that's an HR issue and they'll figure that out. But what is an immediate pain point that I think is acknowledged, whether you're a business owner or even private equity, it's the talent war. Mm -hmm. With uh, employment as low as it is, you cannot afford to lose your talent. I think there's equally becoming a recognition. Your talent is not just your key executives, right? It would be like trying to only hold on to the generals and, and you lose the troops. Yeah. 
If you've lost the troops, who cares if it's a great war strategy? Uh, and so I think that is starting to sink in. The talent issue is not just maintaining your key executives and rock stars, but the glue that keeps a company functioning. And that's, that's critical. So first and foremost, what I say is, when you are doing that organizational structure, do it from the get-go. It's got to be part of the deal planning process. And the, the organizational structure should not be based on people and names and, and departments. It's what is required in order for this vision to be achieved. Mm-hmm. What are our objectives and what's the strategy around it? And what is the right organizational structure that will best serve our customer? Working back from there, then you determine, okay, who are the right groups to do that? And then you get down to the people. Where I have seen that done has led to this greatest chance for success because it thought through from the beginning, what's the org structure we need to have this vision become a reality? And then who are the people that are gonna help us make it happen? Um, And again, I, I continue to go back to the point, your frontline leaders are a key part of your talent. Involve them in the process as soon as you can. Help them to feel invested in the strategy as soon as you can. Because oftentimes, and and it just, we all know it happens. I've been a C-suite executive. As you move up, you you tend to lose sight of what it takes to get things done. Mm -hmm. So if you're writing the strategy and you don't have that, that counterbalance that says, okay, that's a great strategy, but it's gonna take us 18 months to do that. You, you need that input and that, that uh, ability to anticipate the length of time things will be required. So one of the things I really uh, reinforce as much as possible to keep that talent, one, recognize your front line are critical pieces of talent you need to maintain and involve them in the process as soon as you can. And based on your interviews, are there issues that are unique to private equity investment versus maybe ones that arise from a corporate merger acquisition? Yeah, I didn't didn't interview for that distinction. Um, A couple of things, and maybe they were surprises for me that that, uh, does address that. Serial acquirers tend to be more successful Mm -hmm. because they have a standard operating procedure. What I can say is the lesson learned from that, though, is they are very transparent going in. Here's here's how we do this. Here's how this plays, right? Your logo, gone. Or you get to keep it. I mean, serial acquires, they, they can acquire and you're allowed to still uh, operate independently, but they are very clear about what you can expect. And, and the communications start immediately. The strategy is defined. They've already anticipated the organizational structure because, again, they're serial acquirers, so they, they have that down. And people feel less blindsided because they don't deviate from their standard operating procedure. Uh, where I have seen that you have the issues is when, and particularly in the middle market, uh, where there's, they're less experienced in mergers and acquisitions, so there's, there tends to be more often where they're blindsided. They're going through this for the first time. They don't anticipate the people challenges and what's going to happen. And so there, that's where you can see a lot of issues. Um, but where I saw the greatest, and, that, and I think PE, a number of PE firms, that is part of their standard operating procedure, right? Serial acquisition add-on. 
um, and they're very clear about here's what you can expect. And what are some of the steps that companies and private equity investors can take to help mitigate the risks that M&A presents from a, from a human standpoint? Well, you know, there are a few things that um, I, I think can be done. We, we've touched on a number of them. I think there's always going to be risk involved. That's, uh, if I had the, the perfect solution, I would be a, a gazillionaire on that. So for me, it's, it's, it's to the point you made, which is how do you help minimize it? And, and I think first and foremost, when doing the valuation and the due diligence, the thinking through on how you are going to organize your people and how you are going to set up your structure in a way that allows for deal success. Um, I think it's just, it's not unique to PE firms. I just, uh, with with PE firms in particular, and, and this has come through interviews, right? They've shared with me uh, the recognition that they now need to pay closer attention to that because there is, there's so much competition out there right now mm-hmm. for deals that if they don't, really look at the how to distinguish and differentiate their offering from someone else um, they're finding it harder to to make deals happen and so that's where I I say absolutely and by focusing on the people piece um, particularly as it relates to um, family-owned businesses where where values are are tend to be a much bigger piece of their criteria and recognizing that the PE firm that they'll be partnering with or that is helping them to find other businesses equally has a focus on values. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's gone up in importance. And, and what I say is, you know, you can't just give uh, values and, and uh, you know, the importance of people lip service anymore. You need to be able to demonstrate how you have solved for that in the past, how you go into a deal with that as a key part of your focus. And that's actually, frankly, um, allowed me to come into a lot more discussions because there are, is a recognition that we need a human capital advisor mm-hmm. sooner in the process um, than they may have otherwise done in the past. And have you seen private equity firms, you know, add to their own staffs to add, you know, a, a person who focuses more on these issues? We've had a chief human yeah. resources officer on the podcast, so yeah. I was wondering if that's something that you're Slowly seeing as a Slowly but trend. surely, yeah. I, I see it happening. It gives me hope. <laughs> it encourages me to think that there's an acknowledgement that human capital advisors don't need to be someone you just pull in post-deal to help the HR folks the sooner you bring in a human capital advisor to advise both you as a private equity firm, but equally your CEOs and business owners, uh, the better chance you have of laying out a strategy that, uh, frankly, the, 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 the metric I use is accelerate uh, your productivity, right? Because typically productivity is what just drops off a cliff because people, again, are not clear on the vision. So my goal is always to hel- help by talking early, accelerate that productivity because you've galvanized the workforce sooner. They know their role and they know their place. Mm-hmm. Um, the other area where I see um, uh, private equity firms pulling in a more human capital type person is um, succession planning. Oh, okay. Helping get smarter on, okay, we want to keep this key talent and you hope you will, but how do we make sure that if that key talent leaves, 
that we've got the next rung in order? Mm. Um, or what talent are we going to need to bring in from the outside in order for this to be successful? Mm. Um, I think seeing that happen more and more is starting to, uh, I think, bring greater transparency and, and, and a spotlight to the importance of talent, both maintaining them and bringing in the right kind of talent and identifying that sooner versus waiting for you know, bad things to happen or challenges to arise. And, and again, um, I, I, I see that that is playing out more successfully for the PE firms that do that. Hmm. And for someone who is looking to you know, read more about this, you referenced your HBR article. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. But where can they get your book? Where else can they kind of find out more about this topic? Um, well, thank you for that opportunity. Um, go to my website. Uh, we'll uh, ideally include that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Jennifer J. Fondrevay. Dot com. There you can actually pre-order for the book. Uh, it should be published at the beginning of 2019, which I'm very excited about. And the book is really, it's for both executives and for middle managers. Um, it brings transparency for the executives to understand, here's what's going to happen, right? The stages of grief that your workforce is going to go through once the deal is announced. Um, I identify the archetypes that emerge, the types of personalities, frankly, that, are, uh, that come forward when you're in the middle of a merger and acquisition deal. And then I talk about how to make the merger acquisition work for you, right? It's not, it's not all doom and gloom. You don't need to think of that deal announcement as the end of your career. And that, unfortunately, that tends to be the first thought. Um, there's a lot of opportunity in it, but the key message I, I try and reinforce, particularly with middle managers, is know your value. Don't wait for the company to tell you what your value is. Mm-hmm. And the, the sooner you know what your value is and how you can contribute to this new entity, this new business, the new vision, the, the greater opportunity that you will see for your career your career may not be exactly how you had envisioned it, but that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. Uh, and that's what I really reinforce uh, in the book. And uh, my consulting with, um, with executives in particular is to help them anticipate how their workforce will react and how to help them be better leaders for their workforce as they go through the M&A, um, but then also equally helping the, the middle manager really see the opportunity. Mm. I think that's a positive note to end on. Jennifer, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. And thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Please email them to editor at acg.org. I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.